A little bit of bass kicking there. Good morning. So good to be here with you. Welcome. Welcome to all our guests. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening to the person who invited you or dragged you. Not sure. Really glad to have you. I want to welcome our other campuses. we got Cincinnati, Bainbridge, Front Street, and online campuses joining us here at Green. And I'm Justin, and I get to launch us into a new series today titled World Religions. And we're going to cover six major world religions over six weeks. And we are going to be out of breath. I will be just today because this is a big one. Our goal, though, in this series is really simple. We want to first educate you about what other people believe around the world. We want to inspire you and maybe, most importantly, challenge you. The religion that we focus on today I'll give you some clues, and if you already know that's cheating, don't say it out loud. But those of you who don't, I'll give you some clues. It is the newest or youngest world religion. It is the fastest growing world religion, and it is already the second largest religion in the world. Mainly concentrated in North Africa, in the Southeast Asia, in the Middle East, but is spreading rapidly through Europe and America. Any guesses? Man, you're smart. Nailed it. Islam. When we talk about Islam, when I even say the word Islam, that provokes a fairly strong reaction from many. Now, some people hear that word and they think, okay, it's a, it's a religion of peace. Others hear that and they think the exact opposite. They think of holy war, terrorism, jihad. So the questions we're going to try to answer today is, what do Muslims actually believe? And I, and I want to make a question here to you that's a little different. How is their pursuit of God and eternal rewards actually a pursuit of Jesus? And that's what we're going to look at. Now, let me begin with some disclaimers. First disclaimer this morning is this will not be an exhaustive overview of Islam. Can't possibly do that in 40 minutes. I deleted half of this message yesterday. And I'm going to talk as fast as I can to get in the other half. Can't possibly cover it in 40 minutes. So I encourage you, like, research this on your own. Just going to have kind of a 40,000 view perspective on Islam. The second disclaimer is this. I am not an authority. I am not a Muslim scholar. And so there are people far more researched and studied than I am. I have been reading some of them, and I'm going to share a little bit of what I've learned. But as a Bible church, we encourage you, research on your own, discover. I'm going to hopefully just whet your appetite to go a little bit deeper. And I'll give you some recommendations in a bit of things you can study. So, are you ready to dive in? Let's do this. Here, I'll give you an overview to get started. Islam, I'll give you a definition. Uh, this is a quote, Islam is a religion, a civilization, a state, a social system, as well as a philosophy. You kind of have to understand that to know that it's more than just a world religion. It has components of all the systems around us within that religion. It's pretty comprehensive. It's holistic. It affects all of life and government and all the rest. And so that's part of the clash of cultures with Islam and many other world religions. Islam has as its goal, it desires to bring Islamic law to every nation. And we've seen an increase here in the U.S. of this faith. In fact, there was a study commissioned in 2000 
to count the number of mosques in America, and they counted 17 or 1,209. 20 years later, they did the same study, and they counted 2,769. So in just 20 years, there was an explosion of mosques in America. So let me say this. You may not know any Muslims personally, but you will. And I hope you do. And I hope that today prepares you for a future coworker, friend, or neighbor who is of the Muslim faith. So let me begin with a quote from a phenomenal author, Derek Cooper, in his book, Christianity and World Religions. I'm going to share some of what he shares, does a great overview. This is our recommended resource for this series. But I want to share a, a, a quote from him on the screen. It says, The story of Islam is one of the most impressive in the world. Exactly how a handful of marginalized people in the early part of the 7th century were able to flourish into several thousand within a few years and propel themselves into virtual world dominance over the next centuries and become the second largest global religion continues to intrigue onlookers. So let's start with how they began. They began with a guy named, same with me, you know his name, Muhammad. 570 AD, Muhammad was born. He was born in Mecca, the holiest city of Islam. Mecca is in modern-day Saudi Arabia. Now, he was orphaned at a young age, and he was raised by his uncle. He was known for his integrity and his honesty. As he grew up, they gave him the nickname Al-Amin, which meant trustworthy one. He was of a lower socioeconomic status, and so he was considered, most consider him to have been uneducated, unable to read or write. Mohammed married a wealthy widow, and that changed his fortunes quite a bit. At 25 years old, he married her and became more respected in Meccan society. He was a good businessman. He also was very contemplative. So much so that every year he would go to a mountain, Mount Hira, to a cave and spend a month praying and contemplating and meditating. Now, when he was 40 years old, my age, he was in that cave and he had a profound experience that changed his life and changed the lives of billions of people since then. And here's what he said happened during that experience. He claimed he was, he, he met an angel. He had kind of a violent encounter with that angel. The angel squeezed the life out of him forcefully until he read from the book the angel had. That book was the first of a series of revelations that Muhammad claimed to receive from this angel named Gabriel. Ever heard of him? And so he received these revelations from this angel. They were later, later compiled into a book called the Quran. Now, three years later, God supposedly um, commanded Muhammad to start openly proclaiming what he had revealed to him in private. And so he began to publicly proclaim these revelations. It turned out to be a pretty risky thing to do because the revelations taught a monotheistic view of the world and of God. Monotheistic means one God. Mecca was the hub of polytheism. They had over 300, 365 idols 
in their main worship center in Mecca. People traveled from around the world to worship those 365 gods. And so for him to be proclaiming there was one God was incredibly controversial, and it led to an outbreak of all kinds of things. He had to flee for his life. His wealthy wife died. He was now unprotected in that society, and he had to run for his life out of Mecca. Now, as he did so, um, he went to another city. He went to a city called, today it's called Medina. Um, and if you study Islam, you'll hear a lot about Medina. But he was there, and he had 70 followers. A few years later, this guy who ran for his life from Mecca returned back to Mecca with 10,000 followers. Peacefully, I might add, to Mecca, and the, the Meccans, rather than ousting him, gave him the keys to the city. He took over Mecca. There was a series of skirmishes and, and, and battles over the following years, and then two years before Muhammad died, he did something shocking. He returned to Mecca, he went into that main uh, idol worship temple, and he took those 365 idols, and one by one, he smashed them to the astonishment of the crowds. And by doing that, he forever ended the practice of polytheism in not just Mecca, but around the Middle East. So that's the story of Muhammad. Over after he died, there was a battle for succession. He hadn't named a successor, and so there was a schism that developed because of that. I'll mention that in a little bit. But over the next 1,200 years, the story of Islam is a story of expansion and conflict. The, probably the most well-known empire to rise out of Muhammad's movement was the Ottoman Empire. You heard of that? So from 1300, that empire lasted until 1922. They lost in World War I and, and were dissolved in a few years after that war. So that empire lasted for over 600 years. If you've heard of the battles of the Crusaders, that was against the Ottoman Empire and the Muslim movement. So they really were about dominating and spreading their faith across the Middle East and into Africa and, and Europe. Muslim, when you hear the word Muslim, just know that that word means submission to Allah. And when you hear the word Islam, it simply means submission. That's the that's the meaning. It's derived from a root word meaning peace. So when you, again, hear this concept of Islam or Muslims, you need to know that by, by their root meaning, it's, this, it's considered to be a religion of peace. They believe, and I'm going to share a few things they believe, they believe that all creation, creatures, beings, humans, angels, even rocks, are by nature Muslims. And, and are submitted under the power of Allah, of God. They have a very strong view of God. They even believe, despite starting hundreds of years after Jesus Christ, they believe that Muslims have always existed. And that even our spiritual ancestors, Abraham, Moses, David, they were all devout Muslims in the view of Muslims. Now, when I keep mentioning they're a monotheistic faith, there are only two other major world faiths that are monotheistic. There's Islam, there's Judaism, and there's Christianity. 
So those are the big three that are monotheistic. Most others have poly, right? Many gods. Islam is one that has one. So it's interesting. Their view of Adam is that he was the first human being and he was also a devout Muslim. Okay, so you just got to understand that. They think that Jesus was a Muslim prophet. And they believe that his teachings were just later corrupted by his followers. When you read the Muslim account of creation, you may be shocked to see that it reads like our Genesis 1 through 3. It's very similar. There's only a, a, a few major differences, and two of them is this. One is that God quickly forgave the first two humans and didn't curse anything. And two, that there was no passing on of original sin. So there's no concept of this sin nature internal to us. They just think it's free will, that Allah gives free will for people to do good deeds or bad deeds. So that's kind of the, the basics of the Muslim faith. I, I want to pause for a second, because when I mention Allah, there's a lot of controversy and conflict about that word. And here's why I don't want you to get too hung up on it. Allah is simply the Arabic word for God. So if you were in an Arabic-speaking nation, and you were sharing the Bible, and you were speaking through an interpreter, and you say, for God so loved the world, your interpreter would most likely say, for Allah so loved the world. Okay? So just don't get too hung up on the word Allah. What matters more is not the word, it's the definition of that word. The Muslim God is quite different than the Christian God. The Muslim God, they have 99 names they learn of Allah. Out of those 99 beautiful names they call them, not one of those names is love or loving. They do not have a concept of a God of love. Their God is a God of power. And they are all about submitting to the power of their God. They think that God sits high on the throne, far above the earth, and that he is unknowable. This idea of having a relationship with God that we have, that is not a concept that they're familiar with. They also think that their God is the author of good and evil. That is different from the Christian view. We think God authored good, but not evil. So they think you can gain knowledge about God, and they try, but they don't think that God can be known. So God sends prophets and messengers on earth to lead people to the path of goodness and good deeds. And about 500 years ago, or 1,500 years ago, I'm sorry, they believe that God sent his final prophet and messenger on the earth, Muhammad. So let me share with you their belief about their holy scriptures. I, I, I mentioned it earlier that Muhammad received these series of revelations that were compiled into the book, the Quran. The Quran, uh, I want to quote, um, let's see, Dr. Christy Wilson. She says, next to the Bible, the Quran is the most esteemed and most powerful book in the world. The Quran is the centerpiece of Muslim thought. So let me tell you a little bit about the Quran, just so you're slightly familiar with it. Um, this, is, this is a copy of the Quran. It's uh, 114 chapters. Muslims call them surahs. So when you look at it, it says, you know, surah one, surah two. That just means the different chapters or rows. There are 77,000 words in the Quran. So I just brought this for comparison. 
little bit different size, 783,000. Theirs is 10% of the Bible, essentially. So it's much easier to read, uh, much quicker to read and, and to recite and to memorize. A lot of Muslims will memorize this. Something that's interesting, fascinating about the Quran, if you've ever read it, you, you'd be struck by this. Jesus is mentioned multiple times in the Quran and always positively. Always positively. He is considered to be a great prophet from God who gave the gospels to his community. He's noted to have been born of the Virgin Mary and to have been a miracle worker filled with the Holy Spirit. It says that he didn't die by crucifixion. They believe that Jesus just ascended into heaven. So that is a difference. But again, it's all spoken of positively. He's a messenger of Allah. He came to bring God's message to earth. He is not considered to be God's son. And the reason for that is they believe God can have no equals. And so this idea, the Christian idea that there's a trinity, that there's three in one is anathema. It's blasphemy to a Muslim. So Muslims believe that God gave a series of revelations to people, including the Old and New Testaments. They believe God gave those. But they believe the final revelation was the Quran, and that kind of abrogates or abolishes all previous revelations. So practically speaking, most, Quran, most Muslims only view the Quran as the word of God. Now, here's their view of end times. This, was a, this blew my mind when I discovered their view of the end times. They believe that what's going to bring the end times is someone's going to return to earth and defeat an antichrist figure. Anyone want to guess who they think is coming to earth? Jesus. Shocking to anyone else? They believe Jesus is going to come back, going to defeat an antichrist figure, going to reign on earth for 40 years, get married, and then judge everyone living and dead. And everyone will appear before Jesus Christ to give account of their life. And those who have done good will be offered paradise. Those who have not will be thrown into hell. So it's just kind of a fascinating understanding of the end times. Now, here's where the rubber hits the road. If you want to understand a Muslim friend, you need to know that the key to their faith lies in the five pillars of their faith. And you've probably heard those five pillars. I'll just show you and we'll walk through those five pillars briefly. The first is the Shahada. And the Shahada is the statement, there is no God but God, and that Muhammad is the messenger or the prophet of God. And that is the crucial tenet or belief of a Muslim. So that's a very important element of their faith, to ascribe anyone on the same level as God, like Jesus, would be anathema to a Muslim. Prayer is the second pillar of the Muslim faith. And they do this, anyone know how many times a day? Five times a day, beginning at dawn. Sorry, early <laughs> those who are not early risers. You're going to be an early riser if you're a Muslim. So they wake up at dawn, the call to prayer. If you're in a Muslim-majority nation, there's speakers, megaphones at the minarets of the mosques that blow out a call to prayer, speak out a call to prayer calling people to pray. And devout Muslims five times a day will get out their prayer mats and they will pray to what direction? They will pray towards Mecca. 
So from here, it would be east, of course. They will pray towards Mecca, and they will do this five times a day. On Friday afternoon, traditionally, it's the popular time for a Muslim to do their afternoon prayers at a local mosque. The third pillar is fasting. And this is interesting. This would be the ninth month of their calendar every year. They call it Ramadan. You've heard of this. Ramadan is a month of fasting. From And you're like, how do they go without food for a month? They don't. So here's what happens. It's from sun up to sun down. You can't eat, drink, or have sexual relations. But before the sun rises and after the sun sets, game on. And so they have these large communal feasts every evening, and they, there are Muslims that I've heard gain weight during the month of fasting. Um, but here's their purpose of that month. They're trying to be contemplative and to focus on the needs of those around them and to slow down in life. So that's the month of Ramadan. It's part of their pillar of their faith. The fourth one is uh, almsgiving, the giving of charity. They believe that wealth is a blessing from God and that every Muslim should give 2.5% of their wealth to those in need. The fifth is the Hajj, the pilgrimage. And this is an interesting one. Every able-bodied Muslim, if they're financially able, must make a pilgrimage at least once in their life to, can you guess what city? Mecca. And the highlight of that pilgrimage is when they reach into Mecca, they reach into this sacred Kaaba, and I can't explain it now, but you can research, and they circle it seven times. And that's kind of their way of entering into the divine. It is a fascinating thing during COVID that really messed with what they do here because they get so many people. In fact, every year, two to three million Muslims do this. It is the largest human gathering in the world. And it is the fifth pillar of Islam. So to understand those five pillars is to really understand a Muslim. Their entrance into paradise hinges on submitting or obeying to those five pillars. Here's the catch. They could do that and Allah, God, could still reject them from paradise. Muhammad himself didn't know wasn't sure if Muhammad, if, if God would admit him into paradise. Besides those five pillars, there's, there's one more religious duty that's considered by some to be like a sixth pillar. And it's this idea of holy war or jihad. And you have to know there's two main views on jihad. Some think it's an internal struggle. And, it, and, it's, and it's done through prayer and religious study. Others think it's an eternal struggle and it's defending Islam against enemies. And so jihad or holy war, those who believe in this believe that it is automatic entrance into paradise if you die in a holy war in the name of Allah. And so you can study that out. It's fascinating that you, you don't have certainty of your faith unless you die in a holy war and then you're guaranteed, you're guaranteed to go to paradise. Now, in Islam, they're not all the same. So if you try to lump them all together, paint them all with the same brush, you're making some assumptions that aren't going to work. Here's why. There's two big factions. And we just got to be fair about this because there's people that try to lump all Christians in the same bucket. 
And there's a lot of diversity in the Christian faith, right? I mean, we have thousands of denominations and all kinds of different beliefs. They only have two. They have two main ones, and here's what they are. They're Sunni versus Shia. Now, 85% of the Muslim world is Sunni. 85%. And, and they're very similar in, in terms of the five pillars. In fact, they're, they're co-mingled when they do the Hajj pilgrimage into Mecca. It's Sunni and Shia together. But they have very different views and cultures and, and traditions. Because after Muhammad dies, I mentioned he didn't appoint a successor, and that's where there was a split. So they have different views of leadership and that sort of thing. 85% of all Muslims are Sunni, 40% forty Muslim nations around the world are all Sunni dominated. You know where almost all the Shias live? A country called Iran. So if you notice, Iran makes the news a lot because there's so much conflict between Iran and the neighbors. That's why. When you see Muslims bombing Muslims, this is usually why. It is the Shia against the Sunni or vice versa. And so this is an internal, really strong conflict between two warring factions, kind of of the Muslim faith. Now, to be even more fair to them, not everyone can just be categorized as a Sunni or Shia and instantly you know what they believe. There's four schools of thought, and it's not far different from Christian schools of thought. Four types of modern Muslims. The one is the fundamentalist. And, and, and I would venture a guess that when you think of a Muslim, you think of this type of Muslim. A fundamentalist believes that society should return to the original aims of Islam and that all non-Muslim ways should be purged from society. Want an example? The Taliban. That's the school of thought they subscribe to. Now, you get the traditionalists, and the traditionalists think that Islamic law, Sharia law, and doctrine should guide society, but they're not as firm and militant as the traditionalists. The third school of thought is the modernists. The modernist thinks that the West, you can appropriate a lot of the West. They, they, they try not to fully assimilate into Western culture and values, but they, they, they do a lot of assimilation. And then you've got the fourth category of secular, and they believe that faith should be kept separate from politics. So there's an enormous difference. And I share these things to say, don't make, if you meet a Muslim, don't make an assumption that you know what they believe. Because you may not be right at all. And it may ruin your chance to have a conversation or even a friendship with them. What may shock you is there are many Muslim Americans who have no concept of this type of worldview. In fact, there are many Muslims that don't even know what their faith teaches, and they don't even know what's in their holy book. Just by way of example, I've met many Muslim students at Binghamton University and had conversations with them and have asked them, what's their hope of eternity and, and paradise? And they tell me, the five pillars. And my follow-up question is, awesome, like, would you tell me what they are? And I have yet to get a Muslim student at BU recite all five. The most I've gotten is three. What does that tell me? They don't know their faith. They're Muslim in name only, like a lot of Christians. Right? It's just who I am, but it's not really what I believe or practice. And so then a follow-up question to ask a Muslim who doesn't even know the five pillars, and it's fun talking to students, is, does that concern you? If you're basing your eternity on following these five pillars and, and you don't know them, does that concern you? And that's just a, an interesting conversation. 
So let me recap before I get into the application here. We, we don't have time to discuss their treatment of women and the history of terrorism and all those issues. Again, you can research that on your own. But you need to know that in Islam, their prophet that they revere more than any other prophet is Muhammad. Their holy book is the Quran. They have five pillars of their faith that they live by, they submit to. They have two distinct groups. And here's the fifth thing I don't want you to miss. They are real people with real fears, real needs, real hopes, just like you and me. So we agree with Muslims that the world is not as it should be. We agree with Muslims that we are longing for the day when this will all be made right. Amen? We agree. We agree that it will happen when Messiah Jesus Christ appears and does away with the forces of darkness. So, how is the Muslim pursuit of God and eternal rewards actually a pursuit of Jesus? Well, Islam addresses that classic struggle for meaning and purpose. And the main motivator is eternal rewards in paradise. And kind of the benefit of Islam is you don't have to question or wonder or guess if you're doing the system. The system is the five pillars. And so it's pretty clear what to do. The, the confusion is you can't know. I mentioned that, right? You can do those five things, those five pillars, and still not know if you're going to make paradise. And so that leads to fear and insecurity. Am I good enough? Does God accept me? Have I obeyed well enough? Questions that even Muhammad himself could not answer. So here's kind of the, the clincher when it comes to paradise. Is paradise or heaven a perfect place? Yes or no? Yes. Is there any human being on earth who's perfect? No. And so none of us are able to get to heaven. Any one of us in heaven would pollute heaven. And so the idea is you can't get to heaven on your own. You can't be good enough to get there or earn it or deserve it. Let me, let me tell you a story that I think will put skin on everything we've talked about. I want to tell you a story of a guy named El Al Fadi. He's actually this guy right here. Al Fadi, and this was featured in Christianity Today magazine. And, and the story just about brought me to tears. He was born and raised in a devout Muslim family in Saudi Arabia, the, the, the birthplace of Islam. He believed that Islam was the only true religion. He believed that if you didn't accept Allah as your God and Muhammad as his prophet, you were doomed to hell. That is what Muhammad, that is what Al, Al believed. He had nothing but contempt for Christianity. And he believed that all non-Muslims were infidels. By the age of 12, he had memorized half of the Quran. And by the age of 15, he was ready to die on behalf of Allah, alongside his personal hero, Osama bin Laden. He believed that the awards awaiting martyrs who died in Allah's name were greater than any other rewards a Muslim could get. So as he grew, this is what he aimed for. But... He wrestled with doubts and concerns about his faith. He wrestled with the messages of hate that he felt were in the Quran as he read. But he had to keep these to himself. 
He couldn't share them because the penalty for blaspheming Allah and leaving the Muslim faith was death. And so he kept these to himself. When he, when he grew up as an adult, he was going to do some graduate studies, and he came to America for those graduate studies, engineering. And when he, when he was in the U.S. pursuing that, he had been taught, do not befriend Christians. They are filled with hate. But during university, he met a family who showed him a love he had never before experienced among his fellow Muslims. That November, he sat at their table for Thanksgiving dinner. And his heart sank when they asked if they could pray before the meal. He said, I was taught that Christians were filled with hate, but these people were filled with love and were Christians. They had never shared the gospel with me, but they showed me what the gospel looked like. And on that day, he walked out of their home with great doubts about his faith and its teachings. And he made a vow that he would research Christianity, hoping to learn more about Jesus and how Jesus could make such a profound difference in someone's life, offering the kind of peace and joy that I had never seen before. Fast forward a few years, and he's invited to a co-worker's home. And, he, and he's doing Christmas dinner at the co-worker's home. And you know what he noticed? He noticed the same qualities he had seen with that other family at this co-worker's home among his wife and kids, just like the other family he met in college. And at that point, he couldn't hold back his curiosity anymore. So he asked his friend, why are you so different from those around you? And his friend said, because he was a born-again Christian, and he shared his faith story. Al was gripped in that moment with a desire to know more about Jesus. So he made his first visit of his life to a Christian church. Over the next six months, that church studied through the Gospel of John, the Gospel we've been studying the last two years, studying through the Gospel of John, and Al learned about Jesus. In November of 2001, Al accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He was fully convinced by what he had seen and heard. Within months, he had lost his marriage and his job. But he was undeterred to continue following Jesus. In 2010, he founded a global ministry to reach Muslims for Jesus Christ and to equip believers to share their faith with Muslims. He now is a professor at a Christian university and he teaches classes on Islam in local churches. He also, one of his passions, is connecting students from Muslim countries with families, local families, who can show them the same love and hospitality that softened his heart. He says this, I came to know my beloved Jesus through simple acts of love. I wanted to die for Allah. Now I live for Jesus. Reaching a Muslim isn't rocket science. My friends, here's a challenge today. Be the best book on Christianity that your Muslim friends have never read. Or your future Muslim friends have never read. The good news about Jesus, it's the ultimate show and tell. We show how our lives have changed, and we then maybe earn the right to share. If we start by sharing, they close down. 
They've been taught to be deeply offended by Christians, Christianity, and especially Jesus because of their belief how religion has been corrupted, the Christian religion. And we get to show and tell. Many Muslims are searching for the same thing we're searching for. They want to be loved. They want to be accepted. They're looking for hope and purpose and meaning in life. And they're pursuing a spiritual answer to life's biggest question. You don't need to know the Quran by heart to reach a Muslim. You just need to have Jesus in your heart. And you'll have what every Muslim needs. Now, just a few key texts from our holy book that I want to leave with you. John 3.16. For God, read the purple with me, so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the God they've never met. This is a God who loves them. The world, the 1.6 billion with the B Muslims on planet Earth, God loves them so much that he gave up his son's life for them. He loves them, and they need to know that. And they need to know that God is inviting them into a relationship with him that's not a relationship that can be earned or deserved, and heaven can't be somehow rewarded for good deeds. Islam falls into almost every other major world religion viewpoint that you're trying to do a list of do's or don'ts, right? To earn your way to heaven. Christianity is the only religion, only major world religion that doesn't have a list of do's and don'ts. Our religion, our faith is one word, done. Jesus did it all. Jesus paid the price, made the access to God available. Muslims, are pursuing and searching and passionate about reaching paradise and getting rewarded. And at the end of the day, it's a gift. And people like Al, when they find it out, it changes their lives. I want to show you Romans 10, 14. It says, how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? We're going to let that sink in just a second. How are they going to hear about him unless we tell them? Someone's got to tell them. Maybe God will put it on the hearts of some of our own people, some of you, to go befriend some Muslims. Maybe to move to a Muslim-majority nation or to even bless your kids so they can move to a Muslim-majority nation. Some of you hear that and it strikes instant fear into your heart. How are they going to hear unless we tell them? And that fear that you feel, listen, that doesn't come from God. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. That is the spirit that God has given us. We know what they're searching for. Islam means peace, and we know the prince of peace. Muslims are not our enemy, my friends. The Apostle Paul, who was once a terrorist to Christians, made this statement. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, he should know, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Muslims are real people with real fears and hopes and dreams. Many of them are very spiritual people searching for answers. 
and a Muslim coworker or friend or neighbor is just not going to care how much you know until they know how much you care. And it starts with us understanding them, listening to them, not making assumptions that we know how they see the world, because we may not. So I hope that today just sparks your interest. I hope it equips you just a little bit to get to know a Muslim in your life or to befriend a future Muslim. And I want you to know something. Right now is a pretty crazy time in Muslim nations. Do you know that what God is doing in Muslim nations right now, the rate of conversion in Muslim nations to Christianity is the highest in the history of the world. Muslims are coming to Jesus in record numbers. It's crazy. It's crazy. And some of them know they will get killed when they get baptized, and they do it anyway. <laughs> if you'd like to read about what God's doing in some Muslim nations, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a book up here that you can, you can read. The Insanity of God. True stories. Nick Ripkin, he's been on the ground in many of these closed Muslim nations, and what God is doing there is crazy. I wish I could tell you some stories. I don't have time. Read this book. It'll... It'll spark a hunger and love for Muslims in you and for the God who's working in nations that are closed. <laughs> one guy went into a Quran bookstore to buy a Quran. He noticed one book that was a different color than all the others in the Quran bookstore. He bought it, took it home. It was a Bible. <laughs> Stories like that are just crazy. Um, another book I want to recommend, really good, Nabil Qureshi. Some of you have heard of him grew up Muslim, converted to Christianity. His life was changed. His book is Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Incredible, incredible story. It's on Right Now Media too. Ten parts of him personally telling the story. If you want to get on Right Now Media, email me. I'll get you in. The church is subscribed to everyone connected with our church to get in there. And uh, Nabil's story is incredible. He passed away of cancer just recently. Um, but his story has led many Muslims to Jesus Christ and equipped, equipped many Christians to reach out to Muslims. And of course, the book I mentioned at the beginning, Christianity and World Religions, Derek Cooper, if you want an overview of the religions we're going to study this series, I recommend that. My friends, let's be the best book on Christianity our Muslim friends have never read. Most of them will never pick up a Bible, but they'll read you. And maybe they'll find the Jesus they're searching for, the Jesus they're hoping comes back. And how cool it would be when Jesus comes back if they've already known him and surrendered their lives to him. And maybe someday they'll pick up the best book in the world, which is this book, the Bible. Listen, today, if you want a Bible to study more, there's one in the chair in front of you. Take it. It's our gift to you. We give away tons of Bibles here at Brian Bible Church. I just ordered another case last week. We can't think of a better thing to put our money than into Bibles. Um, if you're at Front Street Campus at Regal Theater, there's a white sack there. There's a Bible in that. That Bible's for you. Take it home as our gift for you. Read. Read the book of John and let your faith come alive as you read the story of Jesus. My friends, let's never forget that Jesus specializes in transforming people who are far from him. If he can reach Paul, if he can reach Al, if he can reach you and me, he can reach anybody. Amen. Would you bow in prayer with me? Hey, today, I, I hope, I hope just did what we, what we planned for, that it educated you a little bit, maybe inspired you a little bit, 
maybe challenged you a little bit. My hope and prayer for you is that you would, some of you are, are, are studiers, you're researchers, and, and you're not going to take my word for it. And I'm proud of you. Don't. Go study this out for yourself. And find out what 1.6 billion people on planet Earth today believe. And maybe God will use you to tell them the good news of one of their own prophets, someone they consider to have been a devout Muslim, Jesus Christ, someone they consider the Messiah who's to come, Jesus Christ. Maybe you'll get to show them what Jesus is like with your hospitality, with your kindness. And my friend, maybe you're not a researcher, but maybe you could invite a Muslim friend or coworker or neighbor just over for a meal. Show them hospitality. Show them kindness. Show them love. Don't be afraid of them. They're real people. And they're hungry for a spiritual answer to their needs. And they haven't found it yet. My friend, maybe you're that way. You're, maybe you're not Muslim. You're just, you haven't found an answer to your needs. Can I tell you? His name is Jesus. He loves you. He wants to know you. He wants to forgive you. And if we could introduce you to him, it would be the honor of our life. Today, you can come forward to any of our campuses and talk to a campus leader or pastor. You can fill out a connection card and just check on there that you'd like to pursue a mentor or someone who will help you to learn more about this faith that I've talked about today, the Christian faith. That would be our joy and our honor. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope that you have given us Thank you for being the hope of the world. God, may a great movement of Christians rise up who are willing to not be afraid of those who don't believe what we believe. May we rise up and share your good news with a world desperate to hear. We pray this in the mighty, powerful, matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Can I ask you to do me a favor, church? Would you stand we're going to close with a song, and the song is titled this, My Feet Are On the Rock. And this is a powerful song. It's a great response song, and, and I want to read what we're about to sing. It's going to say this. It's going to reach this chorus. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So stomp your feet and clap your hands. Our feet are on the rock. When we get to that part, if you want to stomp your feet, you're standing on a rock. It's concrete. You go ahead and stomp your feet. You clap your hands, whatever. But it's just a reminder that we have hope if we have Jesus. And he's the hope the world needs.